Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Our mother heard tell. So glad you're with us and giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We sure appreciate it. And we're going to do what we always try to do. We're going to turn down the noise in the news cycle, talk about some things that are important, but we're going to do it by skipping the caterwauling and getting to the information we need to better discern the times we live in. And we got some touchy topics today. AI, everybody's panicking about it. We're going to get to the heart of it. Our buddy James C. from Young's Voices is back. We love talking to him about tech. You've seen him all over network news and other platforms. He's really good on this stuff. What AI is and isn't, what to worry about, what not to worry about, how to better have a conversation about it. Going to talk a little AI with James Arnowski, uh today on the program. Looking forward to that. Got another guest. You remember a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action and the admittance practices of Harvard and UNC was also named, but it was really Harvard. Well, that pitted a lot of people, and those plaintiffs were of the Asian demographic. Well, the largest minority and growing minority in America is Hispanics. So our good friend Gary and Frankel is coming back on the program. He's not only uh, Hispanic himself, he's also in the academic field down in Texas. We're going to get his perspective on it, how the Hispanic community has been thinking and being reacting to some of the debate over college admissions, affirmative actions, and other things. We'll get his perspective. Love having Gary on the program. Good friend, been on many times before. Also going to talk about Burger King after a while. They're getting sued. You're going to enjoy that. And also, uh, another one of those viral tweets of people saying something that kind of sounds okay and sounds nostalgic, but is really dumb when you get to the core of it. And we're going to prove that out in a little bit. Let's start here, though. Uh, two more defendants in the January 6th cases have been sentenced, and these are very severe sentences. The reason they're severe sentences is because the crimes they are charged with are serious. Now, let's back up for a second. What happened on January 6th, you have to parse out because there was different groups of people involved. And here's the part that doesn't make headlines. And here's the part a lot of people haven't been talking about. But the system has worked. All these court cases, over a thousand of them now, we now know who was doing what, and it has been adjudicated, and they've all had their days in court now, most of them. There's still a few stragglers out there. The vast majority of people that were charged were charged with what we would call nuisance or public disruption type charges, trespassing, being places they shouldn't have been. We know from all these court cases now there was a large group of people that got swept up in the moment and did something they shouldn't have done, gone in the Capitol when they shouldn't have. They just went along to get along. And most of them that did something like that got charged accordingly. They got fined. They got probation. Hundreds of them. They did not get some severe sentences. They are not political prisoners. They didn't get treated poorly. Then there was another smaller group underneath that who got carried away and committed acts of violence, committed acts of vandalism took things, broke things, did things they should not do, and they were charged accordingly. They got a little bit more severe charges, and they got a little bit more severe punishments. Then there was another group who committed violence against people, police officers, the building itself. They got charged accordingly, a little bit more severe. And then there was this very small cabal of people, the Proud Boys and others, who really were planning on doing something that would damage the government that day. And they were charged as much from the New York times. Two leaders of the proud boys were sentenced to lengthy prison terms on Thursday for their roles in the assault on the Capitol on January 6th with a top Lieutenant of the far right group, Joseph Biggs getting 17 years and another key figure in the tag, Zachary real getting 15 years. Biggs's sentence follows his conviction in the spring 
on charges of seditious conspiracy was one of the stiffest penalties issued so far in more than 1,100 cases stemming from the Capitol attack and riot and among only a handful to have been legally labeled an act of terrorism. It was just over half of the 33 years the government had requested and just shy of the 18 years given in May to Stuart Rhodes, the leader of another far-right group, the Oath Keeper Militia, who was also found guilty of sedition in connection with the attack on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob. Let's pause right here for a second. This is why I'm saying the system worked. These aren't people that got caught up in the moment. These aren't people that just went along with the mob and then did something they shouldn't have because they got caught up in the moment. These are people who planned to commit violence. They planned to attack the government. They planned to disrupt the government. And they were charged accordingly. They knew exactly what they were doing. They openly bragged about it. Some of them, in this particular case, also had things happen during their court case, like getting caught lying on the stand, which is a big no-no when you're in a criminal trial. These are not good people that just got caught up in the moment. These are not people who did something they normally would not do because of the circumstances they put themselves in. They are charged severely because they planned to do it, and they did it, and then they lied about it, and then they wanted to continue it, and they would probably do it again if given the opportunity to do so. Back to the New York Times. The sentence is handed down by Judge Timothy J. Kelly in Federal District Court in Washington kicked off a series of hearings scheduled for this week, the next at which punishment will be meted out to former chairman of the Proud Boys, Enrique Torrio, and other two members who were convicted of sedition and of other serious crimes at the landmark conspiracy trial this spring. Hours after sentencing, Judge Kelly imposed a 15-year sentence on Rule, who had been convicted on seditions charge, and prosecutors had sentenced 30 years for him, but he got 15. The Proud Boys, who've been fighting in the streets since 2017 for a range of far-right causes, became a central focus of the FBI's investigation in January 6th within days of the Capitol attack. Aside from Mr. Briggs and his co-defendants in the sedition case, Mr. Torrio, Mr. Real, Ethan Nordine, and Dominic Pizzola, more than 20 other members of the group from chapters ranging from New York to Hawaii were ultimately charged in separate indictments. Again, these aren't just people that got caught up. These are not just people that walked through the building and walked out without doing any damage, like some of the videos show. These are people that planned to do bad things, tried to do bad things, and did bad things, and they got charged accordingly. The Justice Department's prosecution of the Proud Boys all but decapitated the group's national leadership, which was formally disbanded after the Capitol attack because they knew what was coming, because they knew they were guilty, and mostly put an end to its involvement in large-scale, often violent, pro-Trump rallies in cities across the country. But as arrests began after January 6, Mr. Tario and his circle of lieutenants started an effort to have their followers become involved in right-wing politics in different ways. There are pictures with this guy with all sorts of Republican candidates and leaders, especially in the MAGA realm. Finishing with the New York Times. For some, that meant running for local office. For others, it meant taking part in smaller-scale protests at school boards or various protests. For Biggs, the sentence effectively ended an unusual career that included a stint as a combat soldier, a job as a roving correspondent for the conspiracy theory website InfoWars, and a leadership role in the Proud Boys at a moment when the far-right group was thrust into the fringes of national politics and into the center of the 2020 election, Mr. Biggs, one of Tario's closest confidants, helped run the Proud Boys when Mr. Trump famously called out the organization with the stand-back and stand-by combination uh, at the debates. A lesser-known figure, real son and grandson of police officers in Philadelphia, ran that city's Proud Boys chapter. He was considered a managing supervisor, that's in quotes, of the conspiracy to disrupt the certification of Mr. Trump's defeat that was taking place inside the Capitol on January 6th. Again, these people are planning to do this, and they tried to do it. They weren't just caught up. They aren't political prisoners. They had a plan to do something that is blatantly illegal and to disruptive to the United States government, and they got charged accordingly, and they got the harshest sentences of anyone because they committed the worst crimes of anyone. They planned it, they tried to do it, they failed to do it, and they got caught. Turn down the noise when you hear about these Proud Boys. They did not throw a thousand people in prison for political reasons after January 6th. They charged 1,100 people through the court systems and adjudicated it. And the vast majority of them that didn't do anything greatly wrong got nuisance things, fines, probation, appropriate punishment for what they did. And most of those people, if you go read their sentencing, expressed sorrow. They claim they got hoodwinked. 
They talked about how they wouldn't do it again. Not so with these guys. These guys were leaders. They wanted to overthrow the government. They thought they were going to be in charge afterwards and be rewarded for it. And they've done all sorts of bad things before this, during this. And if they weren't going to prison, would probably do it after this. Keep your head in this stuff. You can read these court cases. And remember, when folks are spouting off online, despite how ugly it was, despite how upsetting it was to a lot of people, the system worked. More hard tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's one of our friends we go to on all this tech stuff because I don't understand it. He explains it so well. Even I understand it. He's gotten good at it, too. You'll see him all over network TV, print, media, and podcasts like this one right here. James Arnowski, great to have you back, my friend. Thanks for having me. He's a senior contributor with Young Voices, good friend of ours. You've been all over the place on this stuff. Two things I want to talk about. Let's start with AI, though, because... This has been up in your wheelhouse with this tech stuff you cover. Here's the thing with AI, though. I think we need to harp on the actual nomenclature of AI, mm-hmm. because I think when you don't get that right, you wind up all over the place on what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Artificial intelligence is what AI stands for. A souped-up search engine is not artificial intelligence. It is not Skynet. It's not going to take over the Internet. Those two things are different, and yet almost all the news media coverage I see, almost all the tech coverage I see, and all those Congress creators sitting on those dioceses, they're using that interchangeably to make policy. you got to start there with the differences between those two things, and then that's how you wind up with this policy being so bad right off the go. Nothing good's going to come out of this if we don't get this nomenclature correct, right? Oh, no, you're absolutely right there, Andrew. I think that the the we have not started off with our best foot forward when it comes to talking about AI. Um, I think that we use the term artificial intelligence and it's this very broad and nebulous term and it means a lot of things. And I think that because of that, we are kind of letting the conversation get distracted by unnecessary things or things that are unrealistic. I keep thinking back to when this was really kicking off, there was a letter that was signed by 350 different industry leaders and blah, 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 all about how AI needs to be taken seriously on the same level as nuclear war and, and you know, uh, ultimate waste and despair. And it's definitely something that, you know, while it's possible, is extraordinarily, extraordinarily unlikely. And the rhetoric just does not make any sense in terms of meeting the moment for where we're at on this technology. Um, It's a powerful tool. Uh, It's obviously not all sunshines and roses, but it's also not, to your point, Terminator fanfic, uh, end of the world kind of scenarios either. Um, I think that that's a massive mistake. I think AI... Uh, one thing that people don't realize is that it's been getting utilized for the last 20 years easily, I would say, um, in different ways that are more internal facing. And now it's just that we've finally gotten the technology to be so promising and so powerful that we can actually start experimenting with how to put it in a more external facing role and interacting with the end user. And there, there are some really powerful things that can come out of that that are great for us as a society. So um, I wish that we would focus more on these nuanced conversations than just saying, AI, you know, uh, is going to kill people or it's going to do all these things that um, are not necessarily likely or probable for that matter. Yeah, James Arnowski joining us. This is why I like to talk to you about this, because you, you, you're you just a sadist. You just love punishment. You actually watch these hearings and all this stuff. The other side of this and why this has gotten to be a bit of a mess, though, is the big tech versus government thing. And AI is an offshoot of that. And it's actually becoming one of the main offshoots of that ongoing struggle. This is its own cottage industry, if for lack of a better term. There's a lot of money in this. You've been on this program before. You've talked about the money that Facebook and Google and these companies are spending on lobbying. They want a return on that investment. Part of the story here, though, is this is big business for and against, and it's big business for the government because it's more expansion of government regulatory policy. That's kind of the side part of why this is getting bigger and messier and louder that we're not really talking about. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think um, you think back to the first major hearing about AI where they brought in Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, um, the company that powers ChatGPT, the internet sensation, 
uh, that kind of sparked the whole AI conversation, if you will, in many ways. Um, you know, he was sitting there advocating in front of Congress for licensing requirements for uh, powerful AI models. And I think that that's something that, while he might genuinely believe in the in some of the downsides of the technology and the harms and all that, um, it's also impossible to ignore that those same proposals would position his company quite nicely uh, to benefit from a licensing regime because they're already there. Uh, and new entrants might not so easily be able to get into such a licensing regime, uh, you know, so easily. And I think that that's, that's bad. I think that that's cronyism and corporatism in ways that we don't want to be supporting. We support free market ways. We want to go and see um, this technology get supported, not stifled. And when you have members of Congress leaning into that, or, you know, I think the funnier thing from that particular hearing was, uh, it was Chairman Durbin saying like, oh, this is so historical that we have a, a business industry coming to us and asking and begging us to regulate them. I'm like, since when? That's like any day that ends in why everybody is going and lobbying for, uh, you know, something that benefits them in some rhyme or fashion. Uh, it's not unique to AI companies. Get out of here. Um, but no, it's very important in terms of the broader development of the technology that, you know, the United States gets the regulation, if any. Um, right. And I think right now, in part because of the inability to have a responsible and nuanced conversation around the technology, we're getting stuck with these very high broad brush proposals that would go and actually encapsulate a lot of things uh, that are not just, in, you know, the chat GPT, if you will, um, and that would actually be not so great. So I think that we need to do a better job of actually breaking down away from AI into more specific use cases and regulating narrowly tailored solutions around the harms that are being clearly identified there. And that's something that I think that we need to do a better job about. Yeah, James Janowski joining us. In your, you were writing in the New York Post about AI. You brought up China. You talked about the fact that, you know, part of the policy thing is it's one thing to be anti-China and China's policy. And we know about the dictatorship in China and all that. No, you don't want those kind of folks getting a technological advantage. But you'd warned that we got to be careful having policy just in the name of, you know, anti-China stuff where you don't want to hamstring ourselves. It's interesting you bring that up, though, because China has way more control over their populace and over the technology of their populace than we're ever going to have in America. And they still can't make really strict restrictions on this stuff work. There's a lesson there in this, isn't it? As we go to try to do regulations, like, look, they're trying to keep kids off video games. They can't do it. They can't enforce it. And they've got almost a complete dictatorship. They're trying to control AI development and they can't control it because people are figuring this out and the open source is getting out there. There really is lessons to learn in the relationship of how China's doing this and applying them to how we do it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that the takeaway, and I think some Americans are making this mistake where they go and they point at China and think that that's a good thing. I'm like, especially in the context of video games and how they're handling, uh, you know, smartphone technology more broadly speaking right now, there was a recent proposal that they're considering to try to uh, limit kids access to smartphones to only a couple hours a day. Um, I think there's one lesson that people can learn. It's that, you know, people kind of get around all those controls. Um, speaking as a kid who had that, that, control debate with my mom for years growing up. I assure you, we will find a way if we have the will. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I think is underappreciated. And I also think that at least when it comes to those proposals too, it, you've got to be careful, really careful because, you know, some people go and look at that and they want to cheer it on. But I hope they realize too, that the only way that it works is that China has an extraordinary amount of control over their population in ways that are very scary. And that's the only way they can enforce those particular rules in the ways that they want it to, right? So it's like, oh, you know, for kids getting off of video games, what do they do? They require you to go and submit facial scans, which means that the government has your facial data for everybody in the country. And then they can go and link to you online. And that's actually a really severe threat. Online anonymity is actually a great thing for many reasons. It protects us against prosecution from the government in some ways. And I think that we got to be very careful about just simply chasing proposals because we want to protect children. I think that that's a noble goal. I want to go and help kids be safer when they're operating in an online ecosystem. But that requires being pragmatic and understanding in terms of what kinds of proposals we should be putting forward to help better prepare our children for operating in an online ecosystem.
James Janowski joining us. This brings us to some breaking news we had as we started to prepare for this program. Uh, President Biden has issued an executive order. The title of the executive order is, and I'm quoting here, addressing United States investments in certain national security technologies and products in countries of concern. They said countries of concern, but when you scroll down to the bottom of the White House page here, the annex says the countries of concern are China, Hong Kong, and Macau. This is a China executive order. Let's call it what it is. You tipped me on this and I hadn't remembered this. They're using what's called the IEE, IEEPA, government acronyms, National Emergency Act, the International Emergency Economics Power Act. I halfway remembered it, and then you clued me up. This is something they talked about using during the TikTok ban debates. This was some stuff they talked about this. Now they're using it for this other technology. We get the big buzzwords of national security, sensitive technology, AI is going to make an appearance when they have a hearing on this. You watch. It's going to be that kind of stuff. Yep. What was your read on this executive order and how it's kind of a continuation of the running argument we're already having over technology? Yeah, I think that, you know, this was an order that was kind of long in the making and, and predictable and unsurprising that it dropped. I mean, this is just building on uh, actually one area where uh, the current administration and the past administration were actually quite hard on China um, in ways that I don't think many people realize. So. Uh, the administration's already put export controls on certain kinds of chip technology to China. This seems to go and further enhance that. And it's all done underneath the guise of national security. And the problem, at least for me, at face value with the national security argument particularly, because we'll see this coming up again in the fall when it comes to reauthorizing Section 702 of FISA, uh, is that it's going to be done and argued underneath national security grounds. And I think that it's important to recognize that national security is obviously important. I think that uh, a lot of Americans would want their country to be kept safe from threats that are domestic and abroad. Um, but uh, where's the line in, in the name of that goal, right? And when does that start, you know, encroaching on other kinds of protections that might be there, at least in the context of FISA? Um, I think that what this national security lens might be doing in this particular case is also serving as a backdrop to go and justify why you want to pursue very costly industrial policy like the chips and science act that congress passed last year which afforded over 52 billion dollars immediately for uh you know chip manufacturers and then it's going to cost an estimated 280 billion dollars i want to say over the next 10 years um in order to go and help increase america's competitiveness in this space i think that you know industrial policy has been pretty tricky i don't think that it's had a great track record of success um but i think that things like this go to try to you know serve as a backdrop to help bolster those efforts too. Um, so I, I think that I'm pretty hesitant when I see something like this pop up. Yeah. James Cernowski joining us. Our friend Steve Burnham over at Racket News, good friend of ours, disagrees with us a little bit on this, but I think it's worthy talking about one of the arguments he made. He pointed out, and he's going with the national security argument. He praises Biden on this. By the way, he's not a Biden supporter. This is a bipartisan thing. But I've seen other conservatives actually come out and be okay with this and folks on the right. And he pointed out that this is a combination. I'm going to quote from the piece here. We will link to it on the subsect notes. AI technology coupled with quantum technology deployed in places like in orbit, not just on the Internet, is a powerful way to break through some of our current systems. I don't disagree with all that, but this goes back to where we started this conversation. What's your definition of AI? What's your definition of quantum technology? What's your definition of delivery systems for this technology, which is the other part of AI nobody wants to talk about? You still have to deliver it, and it's still got to be a product, and how are you using that? This is all stuff in the future. I'm a little bit leery, and I can be talked into it, but I'm a little leery making policy like this on what stuff may develop into. I understand you want to be looking around the corner, but I can see some problems there, even though China and I think China is an enemy and an adversary and the Chinese government is somebody we need to treat thusly. I think it's prudent to pause there and go, well, wait a minute. We're not even sure what this technology is going to be. Should we slow down on something like this? Is that a fair position to have or where does it land with you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I can again, I think that you're not wrong, that it's important to recognize where China is. Um, right now geopolitically um, in, in the conversation. And again, I, I just worry about it being the new red herring, if you will. You know, you think back to the 1950s and the Red Scare um, and using that to justify a lot of things. Uh, you, know, you, you know, not that this is that, but 
you know, you, you would see China all of a sudden becoming the new scapegoat to justify a lot of policy that might not otherwise go and uh, pass muster. So again, I, I think that you have to be very careful about how you're creating it. And honestly, you know, the notion of, to your point of like looking into the future reading glass, I think um, some people might claim that they're better at it uh, than others, but the reality is I think that we're all kind of along for the ride. And, um, you know, we don't actually know. The future is not necessarily certain. We, we don't have like, when people talk about AI and that, you know, uh, doomsday terminator situation you can't even get ai experts to agree on what the timeline like that looks like you'll have some say 10 years some say 20 30 years some say 50 years some say 100 years there's no consensus around any of it so i think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms of understanding the capability and the timeline horizons so that we can make better informed decisions i don't want to go and accidentally shutter off opportunities for development here because ai right now is projected to add about uh, 7% of global GDP over the next 10 years, I believe, if memory serves right. Um, and it will go and double workforce productivity, which these are massive benefits to the end consumer. And, you know, again, if we're doing proposals that have overly broad definitions for any of these technologies, we might be going and, you know, basically having us try to fight this race with both our legs tied uh, and hindering our ability to actually be the leader that we need to be. Because I'll tell you right now, it's not going to be Europe. Uh, Europe has an extremely aggressive regulatory regime that's going to discourage any kind of innovation and major investment in that space. And it's really coming down to the United States and China. And China, I think if there's one thing that we've learned about China, it's that they don't necessarily care about whatever rules that we set up and agree to with other countries, whatever. They're just going to do China. They're going to do their own thing. And that's a legitimate thing that you have to keep in the back of your mind. Um, you know, I think some people will go and overstate where China is at that. So I think that it's a, a little bit of a balancing act to understand that they want to be competitive. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's a fine conversation, but we need to be more more nuanced in how we're having that conversation right now. James Arnowski joining us. This dovetails to how we started this conversation, so here's a good way to end it. A lot of this is fear. People are people are worried about AI. They're worried about what the technology is going to do. You cover this. You also write about it really well. You go on TV and explain it to folks. When you're looking at these headlines, because the headlines are designed to get emotion from us, so we click on it or watch it or listen or whatever. So we're never going to get the fear part out of this conversation. When you're looking at the headlines, what are you looking for to get under the noise of it to, okay, this is something I need to look into, or this is just hot master. This is some tech bro that's trying to sell us something, or this is the government actually doing something that we need to pay attention to. What's your filters for the audience to start looking at the headlines and try to find a little bit better way of looking at this without that fear yeah i think you know i think that you you kind of hit the nail on the head there where i i kind of get dismayed when i see people just simply focusing on problems and not the promise of the technology um i think that there's a lot of promise in ai technology there's a great tedx video that Saul Khan uh, from khan academy put out not too long ago um where he's talking about how he thinks he can use ai to basically create a super tutor for kids um, so that way they can get a better learning education process that goes and helps them learn how to get to the right answer rather than just being told whether they're right or wrong. So I think that that's, that's a phenomenal thing, especially considering how much learning loss kids had during COVID. I think that there's a phenomenal opportunity there to try to close that gap and actually really create a system that empowers kids to be best positioned to succeed and actually learn the necessary skills that they need to do. But it's not just that. They, they can go and help you with the benign tasks like you know schedule planning and looking at travel itineraries and helping navigate food allergies in your household. And on the massive side too, they can go and help with uh, you know cancer research and things of that nature. So I'm always looking for like, you know, people that are identifying what what are the new great things that people are doing with this technology. Uh, drones being used to deliver life-saving medication to people on remote rural islands, right? Um, things of that nature. The more you focus on trying to figure out like what people are doing with it, um, the better. Now, obviously, to your point, there's going to be some people who go and oversell what they're doing. Uh, there was a company in the UK that was recently coming under some scrutiny for that. Um, you know, thankfully, I don't think we've had anybody going to Sam Bankman Freed levels of, of uh, trying to go and oversell what they have going on over there. But I think that, again, it's just about having, a, a you know, an open mind to this whole thing here, because it's easy to go and point out problems. It's it's a lot more difficult to look past that and find what's the promise here and actually focus on getting that to become the possible. So I think that, you know, again, you just look at as many resources as possible um, the thing that I always look at most, first and foremost, too, is the government. You know, what are they trying to do? With the thing that I wrote in the New York Post, it was about the FTC trying to regulate around speech, I think, in, indirectly. 
um, that's problematic. So I think that, you know, again, always keep an eye on what government's trying to do, because in that space, they're trying to get control over these companies and make them acquiesce to things that the government wants. And I think that that would leave us all worse off. Yeah, James Arnowski, we love talking to you about this stuff. You break it down well, sir. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, because I'm telling you right now, I'm going to keep having you back on as much as I can, because this stuff's just going to get more and more needed to be explained, which is a bad way of saying it, but you knew exactly what I meant, because I'm just a good communicator like that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, you're absolutely right, and I'm happy to come and talk anytime with you guys about tech issues. I think that uh, they're going to become increasingly prevalent, especially as we get closer to uh, an election season where I'm sure it will certainly be part of the conversation. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, people can follow me on Twitter at James C's or actually, sorry, I said that wrong. They can follow me on X now. <laughs> Thank you, Elon Musk. Yet again, uh, they can follow me on X at James CZ 19, where I will do all the zeding or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing these days over there. Um, and also, I would I would strongly encourage your listeners to always listen uh, follow Young Voices uh, on X as well uh, at Young Voices Org. They're a great organization. They've I would I would not be remotely where I am today without them. So those are the two places that I would uh, encourage people to follow up. Nor would I. They would cringe at the way we're doing our read right at the moment because we're not exactly lighting it up today, buddy. But you do good work, sir. We will talk to you again. James Ernowski, follow him, and we'll talk again soon, my friend. Thanks. Yes, sir. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Of course, things we see on social media are often somewhere in the range of ridiculous to maliciously bad and lying. Here's something I've seen a couple times uh, recently and over the years, and this is just the latest example. Our friend Joey Politano, who's been on this program, we need to get him back. It's been a while. He's got an excellent Substack, by the way, on economic stuff, really explains things well. But he pointed this piece out. Um, this was a tweet. We're not calling it X. Uh, just one of these normal pay-to-play kind of accounts said, we are, quote, currently earning less and spending more adjusted for inflation than at the worst point of the Great Depression. 
this is of course ridiculous. There's actually a community note that got tagged on this on Twitter, and the community note goes this way: "It's like the 4.2 thousand salary from from the video adjusted to inflation to ninety five thousand dollars today is pulled from IRS taxable returns, which only account for 1.3 percent of the population. The real inflation adjusted salary from 1933 would only be twenty four thousand dollars today. Now there's are folks that are getting by on that amount or less. We don't want to lessen their burdens and what they're struggling with. But Joey put it right. He said something I'm not going to repeat. And then he said unemployment was nearly 25% during the Great Depression. It's currently bumping down around 3 to 4%. And there's been almost 100 years of economic growth since then. So no, we are not, quote, earning less than at the worst point of the Great Depression. This is a whole mode on social media. People who insist that the old days, however far you want to go back, are way better than now. They're not. You got more technology. You got more freedom. It's not that there aren't problems. There's still poverty. There's still prejudices. There's still plenty of things to work on. But think about it. If you can tweet about it, if you can put it on a Facebook post, if you can complain about it from the comfort of your own home and everybody in the world can read it, that right there in and of itself is a pretty good indication you're doing okay because you paid for the device to do it. You paid for the service to pay for it. You ain't missing meals. So settle down a little bit. The worst version of this is people who insist that people from 100 years ago or people from the medieval ages and a certain subset of these knuckleheads had it better than us. They'll even say things like, yeah, dictatorships and being under a king and being a servant and a serf, it's ridiculous. Just ignore those people, mute them, block them, get away from them. No, it was not better to live under a king in the 1400s and die of black death and live as a serf to some feudal lord where you had no rights whatsoever. That's ridiculous. They did not eat better. They did not live better. They did not have better health care, especially those of us in the West and especially those of us in America. We are blessed with many, many things. Our poverty rates have gone up and the quality of life for our impoverished has gone up across the board. Now, again, that doesn't mean there ain't impoverished folks we need to work on. There's plenty of homeless folks, plenty of folks with issues, plenty of folks struggling. We do need to work on those things as well, but keep some perspective. There's more and more economic growth and wealth out there to help take care of those people if we properly hold people accountable to do so. Don't get caught in this trap on social media of how bad things are. Start using your social media to make it better. Ignore those voices and actually help some people. And if you can't help them, at least draw some attention to their plot. It'll do a lot more good for you, too, than just complaining about it. More Hertel right after this. He's back. That's Gary and Frankel there for those of you watching on video for the podcasting audience. You'll just have to take my word for it or remember his voice. You might have heard tell there's been some discussion about affirmative action and colleges since the Supreme Court ruling here recently. We'll talk about he's one of them epidemics. See, you're not an epidemic. That's that thing they cut out of you. He's an academic, which I'm not, or I would have pronounced that correctly. But uh, our buddy Gary and Franco, Young Voices contributor, he's down at Texas A&M. So get all your Aggie jokes ready for the comments. How are you, Gary? Good to see you again, buddy. I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Andrew. You've never heard an Aggie joke ever in your multiple years down at that fine institution of higher learning, have you? Oh, no, never. Not once. Such a thing is unthinkable. (laughs) Uh, At least you got a good sense of humor about it. All right, buddy, let's get into this because you were writing a national review. We're going to link to the whole piece. Read it yourself. I want to start with a piece of nomenclature there because I think one thing that got lost in this argument a little bit, because affirmative action is a long-running argument with a whole lot of layers to it. This Supreme Court case, though, was a little bit more narrow than I think people think it was because, number one, what Harvard was doing, and UNC was also named here, but even this Harvard was doing something even UNC wasn't doing. What Harvard was doing was so different than what any other institution is doing Nobody else is doing what Harvard was doing. So number one, that's a little bit limiting. Number two is it didn't completely get rid of affirmative action. It did severely curtail it in this instant, though. As somebody who is on the academic side of this and been involved in the academic stuff of it, though, 
take it from that angle because I think folks are broad brushing this just a little bit, not that it's not important and wide sweeping it is, but what Harvard was doing is very unique compared to what anybody else was doing. And I think that's kind of gotten lost in this argument a little bit. Absolutely. It's honestly a little harder from my perspective sometimes because Texas hasn't had affirmative action in its public universities for running on 20 years now. But Harvard, unlike other elite Ivy or public Ivy universities that also implemented some form of affirmative action, Harvard made affirmative action as much of a part of its admissions identity as it possibly could without running afoul of what had already been considered Supreme Court precedent, namely their repudiation of uh, racial quotas. So even before this ruling, you couldn't do racial quotas, but Harvard was getting as close as they could without crossing the line. And And in this instance, the Supreme Court took another step forward saying that the broad scale affirmative action policies that Harvard was implementing, along with UNC for different reasons, uh, ran afoul of the Constitution. Now, the reason that's important to note here that Harvard's doing something completely different is there are arguments for affirmative action that have basis in fact. We all know there's discrimination because that's part of human nature. We know the history of discrimination in America. That's all stuff. The question is, is affirmative action a good cure for that problem? And the answer is, well, it depends. And in this case, what you just said, I think is important. If you're already using it basically as a pitching tool in and of itself, you've already missed the point of the affirmative action, which is to get deserving people in the slots that they would otherwise deserve, if not for whatever the discriminatory thing is, in this case, race. Or in other cases, if it was disability or race or creed or religion or whatever else. That's how you try to fix discrimination. By their own definition of what they were doing here, They'd already passed that, went around the corner, and were beyond that, and that's why the court stepped in, at least on the conservative side. Absolutely, and I hate using this analogy because I think it's overused, and in a lot of circumstances, it doesn't really apply, but in this instance, I really think it does, and that Harvard was trying to turn affirmative action into a pseudo-religion for the university. It was a core component of its identity, and it wasn't for even for the principles that you described of giving deserving candidates an opportunity to attend Ivy League universities that they wouldn't have otherwise done. It was, oh, we just love affirmative action because we love affirmative action, which, as you said, defeats the whole point of having it in the first place. And I, I think, as I said in my article, that it's an indication that we need to start looking in another direction. One of those other directions, Gary and Frankel joining us, you wrote in uh, National Review. In this specific court case, it was the Asian folks that brought up the discrimination. Because one of the problems with discrimination is if you start making rules for one group, you're going to have to take from somewhere else. There's only so many slots. So the Asians are saying, okay, we got a problem here. We just had the census recently. We know now the largest group of minorities and growing in this country by multitudes is the Hispanics. Um, a very, it's also a very diversifying demographic, the Hispanics. That means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But as a whole, that is the largest minority group. So you took it from that angle as a Hispanic, as one of those folks, as somebody that's in academia and in a place like Texas where that population is a huge part of what they're doing, either recruiting, staffing, all that stuff. From that point of view, how does that change how you looked at something when you look at another demographic or two other demographics that are having an argument like this? Yeah, Texas, it's interesting looking at this from a Texan perspective because Texas had this whole fight about 20, 25 years ago uh, where affirmative action had been previously implemented in the state and you know, acknowledge, give credit where it's due, it did increase diversity within some of the state's largest public institutions, Texas A&M being one of them. But it was called out for being unfair, for giving preferential to some minority groups and not others, and that's why it was overturned. What they replaced it with, which I think is a better policy, even if it doesn't generate quite as much diversity in universities as affirmative action did, is what's called the top 10% rule. Under the top 10% rule, if you go to any public school in the state and you are in the top 10% of your graduating class, regardless of anything else, 
you get automatic admission into any public university in the state with the exception of UT where it's like top 6% or something like that. But even without UT, that's still a whole lot of other public universities that you can attend right off the bat. And, you know, there are some mixed results in terms of its diversity benefits per se, but I think it is a much fairer policy that really recognizes the conditions on the ground rather than just looking at race. Yeah, Gary and Frankel joining us. Here's part of the problem is you just had the magic word, fair. A percentage is never going to be fair because a percentage at a Northeast Ivy League school is not going to be the same as Arizona State University or Eastern Washington or UCF down in Florida. There's no way that a one-size-fits-all policy is ever going to completely get rid of discrimination. However, clearly this stuff has to have some kind of standards and regulations because you can't let people just do whatever they want because donors start getting their way, legacies start getting their way. That's part of Harvard's problems. They got so many legacies, they don't have enough, they got to manufacture other people getting in because that's your alumni base, that's your donor base. There's a lot of conflicting interests here. So how do you not have one size fits all, but still have some kind of a standard that's enforceable across the board? That seems to really be the nut of this problem when you strip all the other stuff away and get to it. And this is a problem in all kinds of regulation and lawmaking, frankly. That's the core problem. All right, wannabe professor, what do we do about it? <laughs> I like that, wannabe professor. Um it was you're trying to get a PhD. I mean, there's only one reason you get one of those. It's not for the cocktail parties. Let's just be it's, honest. Here. It's, it's definitely not for the cocktail parties. It's interesting. In the comments of my article on Twitter, I had about four or five different people say, well, what about legacy admissions? Why aren't you criticizing that too? And well, I, you can't write three articles at the same time in one piece, but I don't like legacy admissions either. But I think it highlights some of the problem in that affirmative action is treated as part of a zero-sum admissions game. As you said, it's trying to create something generalizable in an area where there's only so much that you can generalize. Uh, what I like about just having a firm boundary that doesn't consider anything else, like the top 10% rule, is that it's able to account for a lot. Obviously, it can't account for everything. There will always be exceptions and extenuating circumstances, and I'm unconvinced that you can ever completely remove discrimination, but it at least gives you something. I also want to note, in the case of Harvard, for instance, which is really, really, really reliant on its legacy admissions, that you don't need institutional legacy admissions in order to create a thriving donor culture or a real campus community, or a real sense of place and identity. You know, you can make your jokes about the Aggies all you want, but we haven't had legacy admissions since 2002, and nobody can say that there isn't some kind of Aggie culture or unifying Aggie identity for better or for worse. It's one of those institutions that you have to create. You can't just put all your reliance in one policy or throw money at it and expect it to create organically. That's just not how the world works. Yeah, Gary and Frankel joining us. I think you bring up a point here. All this stuff is interconnected to something else. One of the problems with affirmative action, the idea, and again, I, people are like, well, I'm against affirmative action, but like, well, no, the concept's really good. The buzzword and the term has kind of gotten warped around, but yes, you want to give people that are otherwise discriminated against a chance. So you're really not against the concept. Be careful what you're saying there. But the problem is, Something like Harvard, it's not just affirmative action. It's the fact that it's an Ivy League school. It's the fact that it has an endowment of a GDP of a small country. It's that it has a legacy admission. It's the fact that it has outsized influence, which means it has outsized pressure from things like the media, from the government, from the legal community, those people that hold them in high esteem. There's a lot of factors that go into what caused the problem. And then you put in the finances, the student debt problem the cost of admissions problem, the rising tuition problem, and the fact that tuition is falling now, and a lot of major universities, even big-name universities, are having a cash crunch. My beloved WVU is going through this right now. They spent way too much money, now enrollment's dropping, everybody's panicking because they didn't plan. Those things all go together to create the problem. So you can't just say affirmative action. It's one puzzle piece to all this other stuff, too. That's just the hot button issue of the moment. How do we get more of an organic, I hate this word, but it's for lack of a better term, 
we really do bad at having this holistic view of higher education. We just want to pick and choose the problems and fixing one or two, even in, with the best of intentions, without looking at the whole, you end up making more of a mess. Is that a fair way to put some of the problem here too? Not just the affirmative action, but higher ed in general. Oh, higher ed is completely broken for a multitude of reasons. Uh, it started decades ago where the government heavily subsidizing universities allowed for them to jack up their prices and the government would step in with student loans in order for people to meet the new rising rapidly cost of attendance. That's where this all starts. But that sort of perspective eventually warped its way into our public schools as well. And now there's this really pernicious idea that, well, if you don't go to college, even if you're more than capable working as a welder and making a lot of money, well, if you don't go to college, you're a failure somehow. And the entire system is rooted in these four-year degrees that a lot of people don't necessarily want or don't necessarily need. But since it's managed to manage to grow into our perception of prestige and power and identity, it becomes this whole entire mess. You know, I'm not the biggest Boris Johnson fan in the world, but I really do like this one. I, I think it was a graduation speech he gave at a university in Britain. And he asked this elite group of graduates, uh, how many of you think it's important? How many of you think that everybody should go to college? And, you know, not many of them raised their hands because obviously they're they're part of the new elite and they don't, well, you don't need to go to college in order to be successful. And then Johnson asked them to apply that to their own kids. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. My kid is going to college. It's going to be somebody else's kid that <laughs> has to make that adjustment. And the entire way of thinking is just flawed. So I think this is definitely a puzzle piece that we needed to get rid of. But there are a whole lot of other pieces of that puzzle remaining that are causing problems in their own right. Yeah, I'm I'm a simpleton. If you drop the cost of tuition, you'll have more people in the colleges. I mean, call me call me a simpleton. But Boris Johnson, it should be noted though, for you following along at home and those of you from Logan who don't know, is the absolute epitome of the UK uh, system of special schools and schooling. He quotes and is proud of long verses of stuff in the original Latin. He is the elitist of elited. Uh, educated folks. So I find that a little funny that he would bust that out just for a little context. Gary and Frank will always enjoy talking to you, my friend. Uh, until we get you back on Herd Tell again and get you off your ranch porch you're sitting on there with your background, uh, <laughs> let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, and how they can keep up with you until we see you again. Um, most active on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N doing a lot of academic work right now, writing a chapter on John Locke, doing an article for the Fordham Institute in education, and then I'm writing something on global citizenship. So a whole lot going on right now. You do good work, sir. Always enjoy the conversation. You keep them straight down there in Aggie land, and we'll see if there's any good jokes in the comments. I'll make sure to forward them to you for next time I see you. All right, my friend? Please do. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thanks, Gary. Talk soon, sir. Appreciate you. Let's end on a, well, usually we end on a good note, but this is kind of a weird note, but I think it's fun to talk about. Let's go to Food and Wine Magazine. I've seen this pop up a couple places on social media, wanted to talk about it. Uh, Burger King, who currently has one of the more annoying commercials. Uh, you thought that weird King costume was bad. The new jingle's even worse. I guess it works because you remember it, but it's terrible. Remember when it was just have it your way or where's the beef? Do better, Burger King. But anyway, Burger King is getting sued, uh, Food & Wine Magazine. In March 2022, four people filed a class action lawsuit. I thought class action lawsuits needed more than four people. In U.S. District Court in Miami, alleging that Burger King exaggerated the size of its burgers. Of course, Burger King's famous burger is the Whopper. 
Uh, the plaintiff's legal filing alleges that Burger King used inaccurate pictures to both advertise and illustrate its Whopper, inflating the size of its sandwiches by, quote, approximately 35% in photographs. Although the size of the Whopper increased materially in Burger King's advertisements, the recipe or the amount of beef or ingredients contained has never changed, the lawsuit states. Well, this is some lawyering. In the months since the filing, the two sides tried and failed to reach an agreement through mediation. Uh, pause right here. This is not food and wine. This is me saying this. Uh, Burger King was trying to find out what the go-away amount of money for this litigation was going to be. That's like, how much do we got to pay you to just make you go away? And then the balance is, is it going to cost us more to just pay them to go away as a multi-billion dollar company than it is to pay them in whatever they're going to get and what it's going to cost to fight it in court? Uh, Burger King also attempted to have the lawsuit dismissed, but a judge has rejected that request. In a 22-page ruling, U.S. District Judge Roy Altman wrote, lawsuit may proceed and Burger King will have to defend itself in court against the plaintiff's allegations. Who are we to decide whether such a seemingly substantial difference between what was promised and what was sold or not sold enough to alter the purchase preferences of reasonable American customers, Altman wrote, according to the Sun Sentinel, that's the judge, Far better, it seems, to leave the determination to the consumers themselves, who, if the case survives that far, will get to sit in the jury box and tell us what reasonable people think on the subject. Burger King attempted to argue that it wasn't required to sell Whoppers that look exactly like the picture, but that wasn't enough to sway Altman in his favor. In a statement to Reuters, Burger King's spokesperson said that the plaintiff's claims lawsuits were not true. The flame-grilled beef is a quote. Patties portrayed in our advertising are the same patties used in the millions of Whopper sandwiches we serve to guests nationwide, the statement continued. Meanwhile, the plaintiff's attorneys explained that these four individuals are just trying to make a difference. Uh-huh. Those people aren't looking to get $5 million because they bought a burger that didn't look at it. Anthony Russo, this is the lawyer. The customers really want to bring about change. They have a lot of choices. They just want to... Just be told truthfully what their choices are. I love lawyers, don't you? These aren't Russo's only clients, though, who, ahem, that ahem is written in the copy. Want to bring about change. He also represents Frank Saragusa, New York man who filed a lawsuit against Taco Bell, alleging the, quote, misleading, inaccurate, and de deceptively presents its crunch wraps and Mexican pizzas and photos and advertisements. Another Russo client sued McDonald's and Wendy's over the actual size of their burgers compared to how they appeared in the ads. Those cases are still pending. That's from Food and Wine. I think we see what's going on here. Look, I'm all for truth in advertising, but clearly this is an attorney who's found his niche. He's found his windmill to tilt at, and he's trying to make it rain on his own head over the fast food giants. We'll see how it goes. I don't know, folks. Just realize when you go to the drive through menu, they blow it up so you can see it. It's always going to look better than it probably really is. And if you don't like it, take it up with the manager. Don't be rude to the service workers and just deal with it. It's fast food. You know what you're getting into. That'll do it for her to tell. Uh, however you're listening, watching, sharing us, make sure you subscribe or follow on that platform. Not only will that make sure you don't miss anything, but it also lets us know how you're getting the program. We can continue to cater it to how you need to get it. So iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all those platforms, YouTube. If you're listening on any other platform, let us know. We are on just about every podcasting platform there is. You can also get us directly on the Substack, herdtell.substack.com. Not just all the herd tells, uh, but also some archival stuff we're putting on there. All my new writing, different media appearances. It's kind of one-stop shopping for everything we do, and it is completely free. Sign up, go right into your mailbox anytime we do something. And that'll do it for herd tells. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Hope they fed you exactly what was on the picture at that. And we'll talk to you again soon next time for more Hurt All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Hurt Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. 
Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.